This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto Locust Walk on a balmy. It feels like August, but actually September morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with, get this, the whole crew. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Feels like Christmas. <laughs> Family in here, packed room. Eric Bradlow across the way. Audie Weiner also. Across the way, Shane Jensen over here next to me. These are all my faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School. Collaborators on Wharton Moneyball have been for four and a half years now. This is about the four and a half year mark, guys. Yeah, I was this actually like exactly to, pretty amazing to wonder how many shows we've done. We're probably in hundreds. Our, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's embarrassing, actually. Right. This is the beautiful thing, though, about Wharton Moneyball. So unlike other topics, like you know, I can say if someone gives a talk show about finance, I'm interested in finance, but you know, not a lot is changing shows on a daily work? basis. <laughs> yeah. The good news is, like for example. There was a tennis match last night that happened. There are Major League Baseball games going on. There's soccer going on. There was actually, since the last show, I think there were a few college football games. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I'm not I sure. Think I didn't there watch were. any. I think tomorrow night something's. Oh, it's called the start of the NFL season. So that's, that's the beauty night. of Wharton Moneyball. All these sports and statistics things happen, and then we just come in every week and talk about them. Every yeah. week something I, happens. So we're going to be here talking for the next two hours. You guys, even if you're not one of the four co hosts, we'd love to hear from you. Jump in here, give us a shout, 1 844. Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. We take those emails during the show live. We have responded live real time. You can also email us in the middle of the week or over the weekend when it's one of these replays. If it's not eight to ten AM Eastern on Wednesday, it's a replay. Or you can hit us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. It's a great way to stay in touch with the sports analytics world. Send us questions, complaints, suggestions for the over-under segment, which we will be doing as we do every week at the end of the show. We have a regular show today. We have a couple of guests. I think they're both NFL guests. Bottom of this hour, top of the next hour. So we've got some NFL to preview as we roll into the 2018 season tomorrow night. But between then and now... Open lines, as Eric said, a lot of different topics on the table. What gentleman has caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, I don't know about you guys. I don't know how many of you guys watched any of the tennis last night. But the match that Nadal played last night against Thiem was one of the great epic battles. It was one of these, you know, as you guys may remember, some of the great, you may obviously remember Isner, Mahout, 70-68 oh, yes. yeah. in the fifth set of Wimbledon. Fortunately, at the U.S. Open, they have a tiebreaker in the fifth set. Djokovic beat Nadal in a five-and-a-half-hour Australian Open final. This match was as good as any tennis match I've seen. And the shocking part, and you guys are looking at the score line up on the screen, Nadal lost the first set 6-0. You might think that's a mistake. It's not a mistake. I don't know if Nadal took 10 points in the first set. It wasn't because he was just foot. Theme literally blew him off the court. And I was wondering... When wow, is this how match sure going to happen? Yeah, how long can this happen for? And at some point, Nadal's going to start winning games. And I actually, I would have wished, I stayed up until the end of the third set when Nadal went up 2-1. I'd assume, well, this match is over. Nadal wears the guy down. He's going to win it now in the fourth set. 
It's nope. not what happened. And as a matter of fact, at the end of the match, they both looked about as equally fit. But this was an, a, a tremendous, tremendous do, match. Do, do you think the fact that this match went so long and was clearly so epic and exhausting, does that have any bearing on Nadal's chances so, uh, in the next no, match? No, no. You don't think wh- so? Uh, let me say why. <laughs> he has a massive advantage. And let me say why. Nadal and Del Potro, who he's playing, by the way, in the semis, played yesterday, Tuesday. His next match is not till Friday. Ah. The other two semifinals are today. So, no, this is just a question. I don't know if we have. We can look at empirics. Which would you rather have? A hard five-set match, but an extra day of rest? Or maybe, let's call it, maybe Djokovic or uh, today has, you know, or uh, Nishikori has a tough four-set match, but then only has one day of rest in between. I think I'd take the day of rest. So I would have said yes, except he doesn't play till Friday. I don't have a lot of intuition on this, to be honest. Not only you have no intuition, but I don't think we've seen the data on this. So let's let's if we can point to something, uh, then maybe we'll find out. In fact, it is a good question to ask our our uh, our physiologists, our sleep experts, our uh, recovery experts, because this is something that's interesting. But let me ask you a separate question. question. Do you agree? Rest and fatigue can have an outcome uh, impact on the outcome of a match. Of course, absolutely. We've seen that. Yes. Are you shocked? That the U.S. Open has a tournament design where half the players have a market advantage in that they get happens, an extra day of rest. This happens in all kinds of events. It happens in soccer, and it, it, it just happens. Teams play; they don't play the exact same cycle. You have to. It happens in the playoffs. In I know, the but, NFL, but you I'm have an extra day. Some teams play Saturday. Some teams. I know, play but Sunday. this is so far into the tournament. This isn't round one. This is but the it is three days versus two days. It's not like one people are going next day and somebody gets two days. I mean, it's different. Yeah, two no, and three. your analogy for like the NFL is like six days versus seven I, I days, know, right? Yeah, so. undoubtedly. But I mean, I, I think it's a thing, but I don't think it's like an unjust thing. It's just like this: the nature of tournaments. But that there are these different breaks. Yeah. There's other one aspect of the of the match which is interesting is that going down six zero, you. You, it looks like he's going to get blown out, but he might have just essentially once he got broken, his broken service twice. broke twice. He might say, you know, this is this is it. Because the point, of course, is not to win more points than your opponent. The point is to win more get games sets. than your opponent, sets than your opponent. I mean, this totally the, happens in yeah. tennis, right? It happens Absolutely. all the time. They totally conserve themselves once they're out of a set. Yeah. So yeah. what I did notice is at the end of the first set, there were some balls that Nadal normally would have gone for, which he chose not like, to. Why? Why kill myself? This is interesting. Next time we have a let's call it a sports psychologist on, I'm going to ask. I've asked my son this question all the time because in squash matches this happens routinely you get blown out in a game and then i ask him how he's feeling i know this sounds strange he told me he'd rather lose a game 11-0 than lose it 15 to 13 or 17 to 15 not just the amount of energy expenditure he feels look it couldn't have gone worse Eventually, the guy has to cool down in some way, as opposed to, you know, 11 zeros just happen. It's interesting. It would be interesting to ask Nadal, would he rather lose a set 6-0 or lose it 7-6 but 20-18 to 18 in know, a tiebreaker? You know what? When you have a lot of data on your opponent, maybe 11 zero is okay because you know That's that they're the not, they're not the much point. better than you. Great but if point. you don't know where, where you're you standing, you go down 11-0, 6-0, you might just think you're just getting completely outclassed. Well, and you, that's a you different issue. Out. Did y'all see this Jeff Sackman piece? So Jeff was on our show in the last couple of weeks. He's one of the great tennis analysts out there. He writes his own at Tennis Abstract. He writes for The Economist as well. But he had this piece on this interesting women's match. So I'm going to brutalize these names. Marketa Vandersova. Marketa Vandersova beat Kiki Bertens in the third round of the U.S. Open. Despite winning only 47% of the points, fewer 12 fewer than Bertens. She also had fewer aces, more double faults, fewer 
a lower first serve percentage, fewer breaks. So he's basically just, dominated yeah, statistically. Lost across yeah. the board. Actually, that's probably true of the theme match. So theme won the first set 6-0. So we mm-hmm. broke him three times, okay? So I'm pretty sure if we look at the match stats there, theme won more points. Yep. And every, everything else probably everything breaks else. out evenly. I mean, he, the last so, three yep. sets were, there were three seven six sets. So let's assume that's relatively even. A tiebreaker doesn't count as breaking the other person. I'm sure Nadal yeah, won I'm more sure points, broke him more. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure of all of that. But what the consequence of this is, I mean, this is just the nature of the way the game, the counting of the game takes place. So yeah. We don't add up points, right. we, add up, we add up sets, and that's how it works. And this, of course, how it's very similar to the Electoral College. Oh, right, right. The it, Democrats it, run up the vote. You can run up the vote, but one, vote once you're 51, competitive right. once you're 51%, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. But the implication is, for statistics, is that we try to look at these aggregate statistics to make conclusions. And if we can't make, if we can't take counting stats, as counting stats are what we're talking about, the number of aces, the number of double faults, the number of, of service wins, if we can't take counting stats and translate them into percentage probability of victory, it makes our jobs really hard. Actually, you bring mm-hmm. up a great point. If I showed you the match stats for Theme Nadal, you would have said, guaranteed, that Theme, theme was won to win match. with this other example, and that it, happens. But we talk about this all the time, like... What is the box score or summary yes. statistics that would let you in for actually I've never thought about this issue. What information would I have to show you other than the actual score that would actually allow you to for predict? tennis? Let's say well, tennis. You know, I'm gonna, I'm, this is a, we've done this for four years, but this is actually a, one of our very first shows. If we harken back four and a half years, we actually dissected each sport and asked which of the sports is more. Can we predict the outcome with the box scores with greatest accuracy? Mm-hmm. So that was a long time ago. I remember doing some homework on that. Well, I think and, the context also was at the time when we first started out was I think the World Cup four the World years Cup, ago, exactly. and soccer is obviously an, a, a great example of a sport that at least to this point is can't be very done. Can't be done. hard. Yeah. To to predict based on any kind of summary statistics you could take out of the match. Well, one of the nice things I liked about where Sackman was coming from, he, he called these lottery lottery matches. Uh, this is apparently a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. He, he was saying this is an extreme even among lottery matches. But he says that among, in tennis matches, when a player wins something like less than 52% of his points or her points, it's effectively a lottery. That that the, by the structure of tennis, the match is going to come down to like you know a tiebreak here or there. You know and what? Then, I, it's, then it's just chance. You essentially. also so remember, so, it, so there's a there's enough uh, chance and volatility in tennis, especially because of the structure that in. Unless you win something like a sufficiently high majority of the points, you're just subject to it. You actually remember the tennis person we had on maybe a year ago who also quickly talked about, you know, looking at clutch performance. And the way she talked about it was, let's say you condition on the fact that it's in the fifth set. So, for example, my guess is I'm making a number up. Nadal has probably played 100 matches in his career, maybe even more, where it's gone to a fifth set. Now the question is, what fraction of those does he win? Does he win a larger proportion yeah. than the yeah. luck would well, be? This is yeah. an op- I don't want to call this a natural experiment, but it is the kind of data where you could narrow down and say, is Nadal performing yeah. better than you would expect, given on today? Forget he's better than theme in the long run. We know that. But today... They were even at right. best. So right. th- this is just to follow up. We've, we've seen some of this data. When you look at this, these so-called lottery matches, the, the, the thing to do is to look at how well the, the prior information about the players predicts the winner in these lottery matches. And Good. what you'll find is the better player wins them. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so what's, what's the example? Fact, that's great. But so, for example, example, Roger Federer, when he he's, he's the king of these of these these uh, lottery matches, he's often finds has found historically found himself more likely to be in these close situations. Yet he seems to come out on top. So th- this is this again yeah. uh, speaks to this issue of what are we really measuring? We can, something unobservable. There's something mm-hmm. unobservable, or, yeah. or that we're not quite counting, and it has to do with leverage. I mean, certain points count a hell of a lot more than other points in tennis. And again, this is issue of the, the the counting stats aren't that meaningful because you can throw a set once you're behind and you're just giving points to your opponent that just don't matter. Got it. Let me give you a counting stat that I'm curious what you guys interpret. This is the right crowd to ask. Oakland A's, 58 and 0 when leading after seven innings. That's a ridiculous stat. 58 I mean, it's and incredible. 0. This year, 58 yeah. and 0 after seven, leading well, after I, seven innings. I mean, we already talked about the Oakland A's last week, I think, because we were talking about this kind of disparity, specifically in their kind of division race with the Astros, this disparity between um, their uh, run, run differential, even though they basically have almost the same record. Um, and part of that disparity, I think, comes from the fact – I mean, the Oakland – the Astros have a way higher run differential, but about the same record as right. the A's. And I think – Part of that is bullpen. I think, you know, often when you see this misalignment between run differential and win percentage, it's because of bullpen. Yeah, you, you expect to you expect to blow a few games in your bullpen, and, and not blowing any is certainly remarkable. But I'm going to throw out a, like a data data analyst sort of observation for the, for the listeners. Never make an assessment without a control. So I know we're impressed by 58 to 0. <laughs> That's true, and it's the best you like can do. It. But let's see what the other teams do, and then we can get a sense of how out, well, so how much we'll, of an outlier we'll this give, is. Yeah, we'll give us a sense. Because leading I, in the seventh inning, you usually win because you're usually winning by good. more than a bit. Wonderful. So, so I don't do we know have it, any. So, other? so I, my guess is at I this have point, seen the Red Sox blow yeah, games. Right. You, you've seen the them, and I've seen the Yankees blow this games this season, whole bunch so of times. I, I, but I my guess a, is I know their record is How many times? So my guess is that your your most teams are over ninety percent. And and that and therefore so you uh, no, I'm not, 50, I'm not saying 50, fifty-two and six. Fifty-two and six is probably more common. And that now that of course fifty-eight and zero is is remarkable. The only question is how remarkable is it? Okay. And and how have they done it? Um, and that's that's interesting. Certainly, all those years that when that the Yankees were winning all those games, Rivera was just a lock. I mean, it's it's just for for eighteen years or some ridiculous number of By years. Way, do you happen to know? I happen to know this number. Do you know what his? He's the highest of all time. Rivera. What his save percentages. I would probably guess it's probably about 95% or 97%. No. What? I think it's yeah, – I know it's between 0. .90 and 0. .91. Okay, so it's not and even – he's the greatest yeah. of all time. Right. Mm-hmm. So just right. to give you some piece right. of data – and by the way, just to show you, though, the magnitude – I mean, we've talked about this. An effect size of six games in baseball – I mean, let's take a look. Right now, the Astros are roughly 80 and 50 – sorry, Oakland, roughly 80 and 54, somewhere in that range. You subtract six wins. Oh, they're out of the race. They're, not only are they out of the race, but it's, you know, 80 and 54 is a great record. 76 and 60 is good. Yeah. But let's not put them in the all-time great teams at 76 and 60. So actually, a six-game swing in baseball. It's enormous. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with your – I like your analysis. I would have guessed 90% as well, at best case, leading after the seventh inning. Yeah. But again, that's a huge effect size. Right. Huge. Yeah. So let me give you another observation that jumped out this week. DeGrom completes his 25th straight start, allowing three or fewer runs. Now, that 
Here's here's the control for you, Adi. That's an MLB record. Yeah. But tell me, tell me, you guys, I I, I, try, I was trying to get my head around it. How impressive is that? I kept on waiting for them to give me some other detail. Like, does it need to have been in there a certain number of innings? Does it matter that starters are pulled now sooner than they it used does. to be? It absolutely does. DeGrom typically pitches five or six innings. Even so, when he gives up one run, they'll pull him after the fifth or sixth. So back inning. in the day, when guys were you know pushing no a seventh, was eighth, pulled ninth, even, with even, one run. even if they had right. three runs, they might still be going. Absolutely. Might... Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys. I had pulled the date on Degrom as well, um, and so his ERA this year now is down to one point six eight. That's right. He's got he's got two hundred and thirty strikeouts. He's got a WHIP of zero point nine six. He's eight and eight. Is he the uh, Cy Young winner? Yes. He, not only is he the Cy Young, he's he's the likely candidate for the MVP. At eight and eight, not this I, is I, a trial. No, let, me, let me change that. Let me re- rephrase that. He's not the likely candidate because the voters aren't going to go for that. And 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 of course, Eric just went. Yeah, yeah you, you yeah, think yeah, he yeah. should win the MVP? I think is that what statistically, there's no one in the National League who's produced as who's been as valuable. Or let me rephrase this: who would have been as valuable to another team if they had had that kind of performance? So is that so? Is it true with pitchers like that? I mean, so it's very rare that a pitcher wins the MVP, right? But, right, but it's right. occasionally they deserve it. it. And this is this is mm-hmm. okay. this might be one. Of, this is a remarkable season. I actually like the way you framed that. I hadn't thought about it because the Mets are at best a mediocre team. This year. <laughs> they're not a great team. Sorry, Mets fans. You framed it as you a player who like, you put him on the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Astros with his pitching record. He might be twenty and two right now. Oh my god! So I'm Certainly. saying he yeah, might, might be, be tied with the Red Sox. Well, let's go back. <laughs> well, let's go back here. By the way, he might be worth an extra five or six wins. I mean, if you count the number over of, average, over, yes, average, over average, he might be worth five yes. or six wins over average. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, for a single player, that's huge. So I, I, it would be remarkable for the voters to actually take that nuanced uh, stance on this thing. Well, you agree? Just, he can win it. You agree? We won't have Sure, sure. It's complicated because the win-loss percentage has always been a great predictor for Cy Young. I think that there's been a... Well, King a, Felix would have been the best example. Right. I think he won. It was either 15 and 14 or 13 and 12. It's, it has changed. He was somewhere right around there when he won the Cy Young. And actually, I did compare last night. DeGrom's numbers are better than King Felix's yeah. number in that given year. So, yeah. I mean... 1.68 we don't see. Say, guys, just a quick plug. We had Ben Ryder on here a couple of weeks ago, and he's got this new book out. Came out in July called Astro Ball about mm-hmm. the Astros. It's not just about the Astros; it's about blending experts and algorithms. And it's something that that it looks like the Astros are doing better than almost anybody, not just in sports but outside of sports. Anyway, the book is great. I'm about I don't know a third of the way into it, and it's I'm going to. I love on, your reading baseball. I'm going to keep on plugging. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really reading algorithmic guidance. Yeah, come on. That's, that's what I'm reading. No, <laughs> We're going to get you some college. Football I will. I'll but read it. It's our, friend, our friend Sig Meidahl is is uh, mm-hmm. the star of the thing. Jeff Luno, Penn mm-hmm. alum, is the star of the thing. Ben's a great writer. It's a it's a big plug. It's very interesting. Ben Ryder, a book called Astro Ball. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. You can join us, 844-942-7866. That's 844-942-7866. For the moment, we've got the whole crew. We're going to lose Audi to the classroom here Damn. at the top of the hour. But at the moment, we have Cade here hosting, along with Shane Eric and Adi. While we have Adi still here in baseball, you know, so there's a, not I'll say a great chance because the Cubs would need to go 19 and 5, but we're almost certain to have three teams this year with over 100 wins and cons- possibly considerably over 100 wins, but we may even have a fourth team with 100 wins this year. Does that, I mean, does the amount of variance this year, I mean, obviously we have the Royals and the uh, yeah, two I mean, Royals, lots and yeah. lots of yeah. yeah. losses. Absolutely terrible teams. But also, I mean, the fact is we're going to have, I mean, for sure. great pennant races. There's like eight teams in it in the National League. Yeah. 
So I think we're getting we're getting everything. We're getting extremes in the top, extremes at the bottom. Well, I mean, lots we, we, of great well, we've got though. we've essentially got the American League, which is all at the extremes. Very, Correct. very good teams, right. very very bad teams, and then the National League, where nobody's particularly good, nobody's particularly bad. Yeah, it, it just struck me that I just don't remember a year with three teams. I don't know that I've ever oh, I seen a year. I, I, never, I think I looked it up at some point. Has there ever been a year? Happened. It's never happened. It's three it's in one league. I mean, you'll be lucky to get the yeah. Cubs. You're trying to get the Cubs. You get a 100-win team actually, once every couple seasons. You actually just brought up something even more important. These Usually. are three in the same in league. Same in the same, three in the same league. I mean, one of those teams is going to be in the, is probably going to be in the wild card. One of the teams is going to be in the wild yeah. card. Yeah, the um, Yankees will the Yankees win 100 to, games and be in the wild card. Well, they, they, y'all are saying they're going to win. They're projected to win 101. That's just good. Oh, they, they, they have to go, thir- they have to go well. 13 and 10 to win 100 yeah. right now in yeah. the remaining games. They have to go 13 yeah. and 10. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think I, I think I looked at the Yankees' schedules. It's basically all White Sox and Rolls from here on in. It's, yeah, it's six against Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. So, did y'all watch any college football this weekend? I want to yeah. hear about yeah. it. Yeah. Tell you, me. What did tell you me watch? Your, I didn't have a chance to watch, so I want to ask you. I watched a little bit of this Texas Maryland game. I watched it in person, and it was a painful freaking root canal. It was just. Awful. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. God, no. I, it, 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 I, I did think to myself. I. I you know, you just you know the the closer you get to the game, the the more you deepen the experience. And yeah. so when it goes well, it's great. But when you really roll the dice by dri- you were there driving down the season there, season opener the couple years ago when they beat Notre Dame. Uh, Notre that, Dame Sunday, that was, was a Sunday night game, Labor yeah. Day weekend. That was the you know the only game on on, and so everyone's paying attention. It was a thriller of a game, probably my best sport going experience. And we all thought Texas was back. And then, oh my gosh. Can you give us a sense? How much of a favorite was Texas? 13 points. Okay. And so they lost by five. So that's a very, very significant. Yeah. Point. You know what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back it up because I've done these calculations for college football. 13 points is about a standard deviation. That's right. It's a standard and a half deviation. And one half? and a half. No, I mean the 18 point swing. Oh, the 18 points in, yeah. uh, in the total. Yeah. So it's not insane. It's yeah. So that means what? They were like 75 25, 70 30 to win the yeah. game? They were a little more I think than that. They were 75 to win the yeah. game. So maybe a little slightly north. Still, one in four happens. It's not, one it's in not four times. Let's, 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 it didn't happen, but it's not Penn State, Appalachian State, right? That was that was which also. would have been obviously a much more momentous. I imagine Penn State had to be more than a thirteen point favorite in that game. Uh, Twenty two, I think. Twenty one. I don't know the answer. I think that. I read this. I, I, in, the, in the list of big games we listed, you know, going into the weekend, and we ran the numbers on. That's not we didn't one list of them. Penn State. Yeah, but State. until until Penn State had to score at the end of the game <laughs> to even know. send McSorley, it into overtime. McSorley did it. I was, I was remembering a game he he led them back against Iowa in Iowa last year and it was a similar last drive touchdown pass impressive thing McSorley's got some of that going on so I wanted to ask a technical observation a question for you Kate and your models given that Penn State did this what does that do to your future projections does it knock them down do you ignore it a win's a win what what, what does it mean certainly or, you're, you're you're pitching me softball I am I am look at that <laughs> um, I'm gonna make a prediction before Kate speaks <laughs> a win's not a win I but know. let's keep going yeah. you don't even use wins so get, get, let's 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 see what this means. You're looking. You look at play success mostly. Well, no, we look at four, four or five different things. But play success is probably the most important statistic in there. And so the wins we find that whether or not the team wins doesn't add any predictive power once above you, and beyond what you've one, got. once we've got the other four or five stats in there, four or five on both sides of the ball. So that that did not. It was not a good game for Penn State. Now we lack App State. They're 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 more they're a better team than most people think. Um, it's also early, man. It's so easy to overreact to this for week one stuff. And for one thing, we don't know the quality of the other team. So everyone goes out. Texas goes out and loses to Maryland, and you want to you know, throw Herman overboard. But what if Maryland turns out to be kind of surprisingly good? 
after one game, we really don't know these things. We have mm-hmm. our priors, so we make some adjustment. But, you know, Michigan lost to Notre Dame, and we ended up liking – and we watched the game. Rufus was writing me the next day saying, man, Notre Dame looked good. We run the numbers. Michigan actually looked as good as Notre Dame in that game. So we don't even – I think Michigan rises in our rankings. So we're trying to look past the outcome and look at what happens on a play-by-play basis. And all that we care about, the only thing that matters is how well their play in that game predicts their play in future right. games. So Michigan's loss to Notre Dame will hurt their playoff chances, no doubt. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Yes but no, it's not a Big Ten game. It's not a Big Ten game, so it's helpful in that way. Because if, if they manage to win the Big Ten – Especially if they don't lose again, they're, they're going to the playoffs no matter what. So it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting statistical question. So here you have a game that's not part of the Big Ten. They lost it, but because they played so well against a very good team, you're actually giving them a higher probability potentially than than. Just to hear me out, they could yeah. have won the game but played worse on the field, and then you would have had a lower. Probability right. of them. So, two, your point, there's two things that happen here. One of which you need to be careful and not overreact to. The other which matters and you can react to. You, you're going to make inferences about the quality of the team based on one game. And that's the one that we want to be careful and not overdo. You know, mm-hmm. there's a fundamental ability of this team to win its future games. Then you're going to tend to overreact to that. And we're going to learn a little something. But that's different than they have changed their course. They have changed the steepness of the hill because they've either won or they've lost. Mm-hmm. Just facts. Right. And that you can it's that you can react to appropriately because they did make it more difficult for themselves. For example, they could win the Big Ten, but they could drop a game along the way. And now they'll be a two-loss conference champion. And we've yet to see a two-loss champion make it into the playoff. So they have made it worse for themselves, even if their underlying ability we don't think any differently about, really. Right. Now, I'm telling you, we're some of the only folks that are saying that about Michigan because most people look at that and they're, now they want to throw Harbaugh overboard. And they're mm-hmm. so sick of it. The Michigan fans are treating him after a longer period of time. Granted, the same way Texas fans are treating Herman, you know, they're skeptical. They're kind of done with the story. They're kind of done with the shtick. They're tired of the disappointment. Yeah, in fact, I sort of, I, I actually came to that game result as sort of a, there was a, I was reading a news article about Braylon Edwards, who is one of the college football commentators now, right? Former Michigan player. Former Michigan player, and he had some tweet about how Michigan looked like trash or something like that, like, as a result. Of the yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, they must have really gotten blown out of this right, game or right, something. Right. And then I go to the score, I'm like, oh, no, well, it's they, good they had a narrow loss to yeah. Notre Dame, which we knew was good going right. in. Now, so. you, had, you had Notre Dame as a very good team. Is that the consensus uh, view of Notre Dame? They are. We, we had them higher than most people, but a lot of folks liked them. And, you know, we hit him pretty hard last week on our pregame show, not least because Ty Hildebrand, who's a That's Notre right. Dame fan, was here. But uh, I was delighted. I mean, this is like the first time in my life I've been delighted about anything that was positive for Notre Dame. But they – I guess I've gotten old enough that I don't care so much about the scars from my childhood. But they are – they're we think they're as good as, as, as we expected them to be. And I, it's kind of – I think it's kind of fun to have Notre Dame back in the mix because it makes the college football picture more – Crazy, and yeah. Eric's always wanting. You know, I want you want chaos. Chaos. Yeah. chaos. If you want chaos, you got to you got to like Notre Dame. I think, so, I think Harbaugh is on the hot seat. I mean, the one, the two stats I saw after the game, and I think I've got these appropriately right. In the last like thirty games, he's like five hundred. 
he started out well at Michigan, but he hasn't. Yeah, I mean, really well. that's number one. Number two, I think I saw something like they're zero and fourteen in their last fourteen games against ranked teams. I mean, they've had some horrible record on the road. I, I think maybe it's some, on the road I, I, or I think, something uh, like that. They haven't beaten a ranked team on the road. I think in, in like, some time in a very with long the sun time. shining. Are we, are we really narrowing this down? Or no, is this no, 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 no. <laughs> ranked team on the road. Yeah, I mean, that's not zero. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, the sun that's does not have good. an effect, Audie. I mean, you can't deny that. That's not that self-selected a stat. Well, you hear these things. I mean. This is the standard, you know, um, announcer kind of point That's of view. Right. There, you cut, it, you cut it all the way down to a sample down. size of three. So, for Audie to answer your question, we did drop Penn State four spots in our in our rankings. They are down to thirteen now. There between Mississippi State and Wisconsin. If you want some context, we actually bumped Michigan up. They rose wow. three spots in our rankings. They actually Notre Dame drops Michigan. We we thought Michigan over outplayed them, which is really crazy. Having even watched the game, it's hard to understand. But for what we saw on the field, for how it bodes in their future performance, we thought Michigan actually. Well, interestingly, I see that wow. you have Washington going up. Yeah, and Washington again. Washington dropped. They they dropped a spot, but oh, they um, went down one. Sorry, Auburn Auburn even dropped a spot as well. But that was another one that super close game that could have gone either way. Both teams are, but but this is a great example of don't overreact to Washington not being good. But they did make the hill much steep, steeper to climb because they've got that loss. Right, so Notre Dame, Dame is now almost a 20% playoff chance and Michigan is now about 10, just on your own numbers. That's right, Michigan's below 10, so Probably like swat, 7%. Swat. Something well, 9, like that. I think I have in your sheet here. Um, the uh, the thing that jumped to me as I looked at the numbers, it's, it, it, it's early, so it's, you got to be careful, and God knows crazy things happen in college football, but it kind of feels like the favorites everywhere inched a little bit above the runners-up everywhere. So even if you look at the Pac-12 conference was the least likely to make the playoff, and now they're even less likely. They're still in the mix, of course, maybe 20% or something, maybe higher than that, 20, 29, I think, but much lower than every other conference. But even the teams within the conference, favorite in the SEC, most people liked Alabama, and Alabama had an amazing game, best game of the, of the weekend, according to our numbers. So they're just that much higher than everyone else now. The ACC, Clemson looked fine. Miami looked terrible. And so Clemson steps up a little bit. In the Big Ten, Ohio State, everybody's favorite coming in, looked amazing. While their chief rivals didn't look so impressive, Michigan State almost lost to Utah State. Penn, Penn State, State almost lost, lost so Appalachian. close Michigan to did lose. Michigan did lose. So, again, separation of the Big Ten. In the Big 12, Texas, one of the rivals to OU, albeit a distant rival, fell while OU looked amazing, TCU looked whatever, West Virginia did look legit, but OU definitely stepped up. So if you look across the country, you're like, oh, man, now this looks even more boring before. The playoff looks like, and our playoff numbers clearly separate these guys, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. I mean, head and shoulders above everybody else for those four teams. It'll change, but for the first week to have such this kind of clarifying distancing between the favorites and the others was a little bit... The other thing, quickly, that I read into Auburn beating Washington is it did raise the chances of there being two SEC teams in the playoffs. In other words, if Auburn loses that game, then I'm I'm just saying, when we're looking down the road, if those four teams win, you know, it's going to be four of the five power conferences. But if one of them stumbles, you could see two SEC teams in. And this Auburn win is going to go a long way for that. For sure, plus Auburn's phenomenal. No, I mean, not just that they're phenomenal, but I mean, if they had lost a close game to Washington... The eye test at the end isn't going to say they're going to be a second SEC team in. This helps that eye test at least. Agreed. Um, It's mixed in the SEC, though. You have so many good teams down there. You think, well, 
the chance of two of them emerging are great, but then they might beat each Be- other up. Mm-hmm. Were there any individual performances of note? I mean, we were talking last week with Ty about some freshman quarterback. I mean, this is interesting to me. It's funny, with football, it's all, it's all team level. When it's baseball, it's all individual performance level. So well, what's, what's happened on the individual the, level? One of the most exciting things, is we have almost forgotten now, but the, the season opened Thursday night, basically, and Purdue Northwestern played. And there was a true freshman for Purdue named Rondale Moore who had something like 173 total yards in the first quarter. <laughs> and early in the third quarter, the guy had set the all-time game yardage mark for Purdue in his first game as a true freshman. Wow. <laughs> and so Rondell Moore, what position is, um, is he? he's like a scat back. He's a slot receiver, but they run him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he returns kicks as well. And he, you know, he, he was, he was, I mean, everyone's forgotten this now, but that's what everyone was talking about Thursday night. There were some games, there were some, uh, Khalil Tate, who's also a very exciting player, got bottled up out there in Arizona. Let me just say, I was, I don't want to be too boring about the favorites. There were some second tier teams that looked really good and might, and, you know, you always hope for one of those teams, and usually in college football, something like that does LSU. Emerge. LSU looked great. Mm-hmm. Virginia Tech looked really good against Florida State. And then West Virginia looked great against Tennessee, and West Virginia could give Oklahoma a run for its money. Was We're Virginia gonna, Tech the team that moved the most within your sort of rankings? At the top, certainly. Yeah. Virginia Tech moved eight sp- slots up to number 11, and uh, in the top 20 or so, that was by far the biggest move. All right, fellas, that's been one quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Audie Weiner, we're about to leave. Yeah, about to sadly. Got to go teach. To his classroom. Shane Jensen's going to be here for the duration. And Eric Bradlow wandered back in after a month in the wilderness, moving kids into college and all kinds of things like that. All Traveling kinds of fun Cod, stuff. I think he was probably... Something like that. Something yep. up there. <laughs> Get a little summer vacation. Even, even Eric needs a little time off on occasion. We are rolling a quarter, and in this quarter we're going to have a guest. And the topic will be professional football because... We have professional football coming back into our life beginning so tomorrow exciting. night. It is exciting. To help us talk through the NFL 2018 season, all things NFL analytics, we have Nathan Jonke. Nathan is director of analytics at Pro Football Focus. He started there in 2010 as a data collector. Now he's the director of the dang thing. He is involved with the methodology for turning their raw game grades into season statistics and overall season grades, converting it into things that we can compare and evaluate against each other. Nathan, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Glad to be on right when football is about to get going again. It's no accident, man. We need some knowledge before we roll into the season. Appreciate you coming back to us. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right. So you're at the headquarters there, pro football focus with everybody else? Yep, that is correct. So just to remind everybody what you guys do, how long, how long have you guys been in operation? You started there in 2010. That must have been near the beginning. Um, yeah, it was near the beginning. It was about 2008 when we really started getting going. So I was there. Right now it's practically from the beginning that I was there. But it's been about 10 years that we've been uh, working on this now. And and you guys subscri- you guys provide data to all thirty two NFL teams. I think you've had I think you've had nearly everybody, and now you've got everybody. And a lot of that is their your charting data, understanding teams' tendencies. You're vital to teams as they prep for their opponents now. But you're involved on the grade side. Is that right? Uh, yep, that's one of the things that I'm involved with. Yeah. So so y- y'all break down as I understand it. You break down player performance. 
every every play essentially, and then that aggregates up to game level grades, and then that aggregates up to season level grades. So you in your data, you'll sell this to teams, you'll sell this to individuals. You evaluate player performance at very fine levels of detail. In fact, you break it down into like for a defensive lineman as a rush defense versus pass defense. Is, is this right? Oh, yep, that's all correct, and we're going into even more detail this year. Um, we kind of reworked our 0 to 100 grade so that um, we can look at different categories of play. So if you wanted to see how good a quarterback was doing, uh, specifically in the red zone, how well he's doing when there's no pressure on him, uh, you're able to do that and then extend uh, the sample size as well. So if you wanted to see uh, how well a quarterback was playing the last two years, the last five years, in his entire career, Oh, you're now able to do that with our 0 to 100 numbers. So, Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about where these numbers come from? I know that in some quarters they are controversial, that people take issues with, can you really evaluate these players, especially, for example, if you don't know what the play call was, what their actual responsibilities were. How do you navigate those kinds of issues? Sure. So um, part of the reason that we're grading in general is a lot of what happens in football um, a lot of the stats that are traditional to football are more team stats and player stats. So like passing yards, that's really how good your passing offense did on the play between the offensive line, the quarterback, and the receiver, where we want to start separating out and say, uh, this is who did well on the play, this is who did poorly. So a quarterback can throw a perfectly thrown ball into the receiver's hand, the receiver drops it. Uh, that goes down in the stat book as an incompletion, uh, hurts the quarterback's quarterback rating and so on. But we know that the quarterback did everything in his power to do well on the play. Or we see cases where uh, the quarterback didn't throw the ball so well, the receiver was able to make a miraculous catch, and it's the receiver that receives first. Okay, but Nathan, this, you know, these, analy- these analysts are accustomed to objective facts, and we know the yards gained. We know whether the pass was completed. We know whether a fumble was recovered. You just used the, the term miraculous. So you've got guys sitting there coding catches on levels of miraculousness, and now we're into the world of subjective judgment. So how do you – and so, by the way, I'm asking this in a challenging way, but I understand the enterprise and I'm a supporter of it. But I'm curious how you navigate that. But And, and let me just say, this is a general thing. There are lots of, lots of decision-making processes in the world that take subjective judgment and as inputs into quantitative systems, which is essentially what you're doing. So how do you, how do you manage that to, to, to make that as reliable as possible? Sure. So obviously it is complicated, but it – uh, we have a process where we have every game done by two people and then a third person checking that. And we continuously bring in more people, more former coaches, uh, more former players into our company that can help us uh, figure out exactly what was supposed to happen on that play. So we're able to, uh, to the best of our ability, grade how well the player did at what he was supposed to be doing. And in a lot of cases, it's fairly clear what the player should be doing on a pass play um, you can typically tell uh, who was supposed to be blocking who and how successful they were at it if the player was able to get close to the quarterback or not um, determines how close or how good the offensive lineman did if he was able to block that player or not so um, having players who are or having people in the company who are able to constantly answer questions having our data being constantly looked over by a number of set of eyes in order to make sure it gets to the best product that we can have 
and it's something where we do work with all of the teams and they want our data to be accurate as well so it can help them to the best of their ability. So even if they see something that they think is off, they challenge us all the time on those kind of things. So um, we're able to give them answers or if we were in correct about something, able to change it. So, Nathan, this is Eric Bradlow. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Well, one of my favorite questions here on Wharton Moneyball is, um, do you have a data problem, a modeling problem, or a, you know, let's call it a management problem, convincing them to use analytics? As we look 10 years into the future, do you see what Pro Football Focus does right now being able to done be able to be done in large scale through automated systems, through whether it's cameras, RFID chips, artificial intelligence, some combination of these. Is, and, and if the answer is yes, how do you guys start to make the investment now in what I'll call mass scale better data? I'm just, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Sure. So um, I think a lot of the things uh, can be more automated than they currently are. Uh, for example, one of our processes, uh, player participation, who's on the field, where they line up, and what they do. Um, a lot of that is similar to the kind of things you can get with the next-gen stats, the chips and the shoulder pads, um, seeing where a player is at the start of the play. Um, I think uh, probably has to be an improvement in some sort of camera technology to get more detail of if the player was in a two-point stance, a three-point stance, um, exactly how they're lined up on the play. And then I think uh, more camera angles would probably be needed in order to uh, see what's happening, um, especially on a run play where a lot of players are close together. Um, sometimes that can be hard to tell from just one camera angle, so it'll take a couple of different ones in order to kind of track that sort of stuff. And then I think in 10 years from now, we might be able to get to that point on the NFL level, but getting that in all college stadiums, getting that at the high school level at all, um, will be a lot more difficult, and that's something where um, right now we are collecting data for all of the major colleges. We're starting to collect data for high school as well. So um, I think we'll definitely in 10 years from now see improvements on the NFL level and what's able to be automated but I'm not sure that I'll be able to reach all levels of sport in 10 years from now. Could you also, Nathan, this is Eric again, could you also talk briefly about are there what I'll call high-variance and low-variance players? Like, I assume what every team would want is someone that has high performance all the time. Um, do you notice that when you guys score players over games, like if I look at their 16-game season, there are just some players that have, you know, uneven games. How do you guys think about kind of the consistency of a player, and how much does that come into your player evaluation? Sure. I think that's something that varies a lot from one position to another because how you define success at one position is pretty different than other positions. Uh, take some offensive linemen, especially offensive tackles, where in large part what you're looking for from them is to be perfect in pass protection. And we see players all the time who are able to not allow any pressure over an entire game, and those are the players that are typically more consistent. The elite left tackles are only allowing an average of one or two pressures per game. So you see them have a ton of consistency over the course of the season where someone like a defensive end who um, it's their job to get pressure. There are games where um, they could be shut out. There are games where they could be going up against a weaker offensive lineman and have double-digit pressures. So you see a lot um more inconsistency from one game to another, but I think part of that's just the nature of the position. Um, cornerback's another interesting one in that 
Um, if you're a good cornerback, there are some games where you might not get thrown at at all, where there are other games where you are tested, and then you can either um, have a lot of pass breakups, interceptions, and have a great game, or um, if you do allow a couple catches, then that's probably one of your worst games of the season. Though your kind of uh, grading scheme is should be a little bit more robust to this kind of possibility, like like a defensive back that like isn't thrown at, you can still they should would presumably get a good grade Credit, for yeah. that game yeah. through your system, right? Because yeah. you're still grading that they did a good job on those plays through their coverage. Uh, that's right. So on a game level, if you aren't aren't thrown at in a game. Um, basically every single play where a cornerback isn't thrown at, um, it's a slight positive for them. So over the course of a game, that'll accumulate to a good game grade. But it's something where um, if you want to evaluate specifically how much a cornerback uh, contributed to a game, the cornerbacks who can contribute the most of the game have to be a cornerback that are thrown at and then are able to do something well. You'd still rather have a cornerback who is thrown at once and have an interception than someone who is not thrown at at all. So um, over the course of a game, you might not end up with the best cornerbacks in the league consistently having the top game grades. But over the course of a season, that'll add up. So um, over the course of the season, a cornerback who's not thrown at will end up with a good season grade. So it, it reminds me. It reminds me of uh, yeah. of um, in baseball. You have catcher has a has a lot of value in throwing out runners. But if you're so good, you'll never get thrown. You run on <laughs> right. like uh, Pudge Rodriguez was like this, and so he was the the best, and no one would run against him. And actually, running is a bad idea. So it's almost like there's a misdirection. You want to be the run. You want to be the cornerback who everyone thinks is not so great, but really is actually pretty good. So you get an opportunity well, to. They talk about you. You always exactly. hear of defensive backs baiting quarterbacks uh-huh. into making the throw. So I guess the next level talent would be good enough to like you can you can act as if you don't you don't have them covered and bait the QB into making a play that you can do something with. We're talking to Nathan Jockey. Nathan is the director of analytics at Pro Football Focus. Pro Football Focus is uh now Chris Collinsworth's outfit in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing data and analytics to all the NFL teams and I think a big swath of the college football teams as well. Yep. Nathan, as we roll into the season, is there anything that you are especially interested in seeing how it plays out? Are there teams or there players or storylines that you're especially curious to follow? Yeah, just the NFC in general, I think, is going to be so interesting this year. Since last year, the playoffs were highly competitive. All the teams that were there um, should be highly competitive again this year. And a number of teams who didn't make the playoffs last year but made it the year before. Uh, teams like the Packers and Cowboys uh, have plenty of reason to think that they'll rebound. So I think the NFC, you'll see a ton of competitive matchups throughout the year, and you'll see some very good teams who don't end up making the playoffs in the NFC just from how talented the division or the conference is. Nathan, do you and do you do you get very much into the team projection game? I mean, do you, is, is it is it allowed? essentially by building up from all of the individual players, or do you not bother with that too much? Uh, Yeah, we are getting more into the projecting, especially on my analytics team. We have projections of how many wins we think everyone will have, playoff projections, all of those kind of things. So um, it's a combination of, um, in large part, looking at how well teams played in the past and then taking a little into account the changes that have happened to the team over the course of the offseason. Um, it's easier to project for some teams uh, like the Packers, knowing that they'll have uh, Aaron Rodgers back and how well Aaron Rodgers has done with the team in the past 
versus um, a team like the Rams, who have added a lot of star players on the defense, but um, we still don't exactly know how well um, they'll all work, be able to work together since we've seen in the past good players changing teams and not being able to replicate that success. So um, we definitely have to have some uncertain, uncertainty in the model in order to account for those kind of things. Well, but, you, you might um, be looking. Per- yeah. You might, Nathan, you might be especially well-suited to speak to the impact of a player, a big player move like Khalil Mack. So, again, staying with the NFC, Chicago Bears, already, you know, reasonably solid team, going to be, you know, competitive, though it's a difficult difficult division they're in. Um, what impact do you think Mack will have as he comes in from Oakland? Sure. So some of the interactions I was saying before, a lot of it will deal with one interaction of a player with another. Uh, with pass rushers in particular, it's a bit easier to take one player from one scheme, put them in another scheme, and typically edge defenders in all pass rush situations are just attacking the offensive tackle across from them and trying to get to the quarterback. So that's one where it's a bit easier to transition from one team to another, um, especially this late in the offseason. So I think um, Max, someone who's going to be able to have a lot of success right away um, with them. He's someone who has consistently, over the course of his career, even starting with his rookie year, um, has graded very well for us. Uh, he's the highest-graded edge defender over the last couple of seasons put together. So um, he's someone who I think will have a great year this year, even though he changed teams right at the end of the offseason. Nathan, this is Eric Brother. Do you guys ever think about um, you know what other people do relating to the draft and how much value he has? So, for example, if I got it right, he was traded for two number one picks, a number three, and maybe even like a sixth rounder or something. Do you guys get into the game of, wow, I mean, yeah, Khalil Max may be the best defensive player in football, certainly one of the top three, um, but you know, for two number ones, number three, and number six, you know, I may trade Aaron Rodgers at the end of his career. I don't know. I mean, how do you guys think about kind of fair, comparable value? Do you guys look into that at all? Uh, sure. There's a number of different things to look at there. Um, we a bit more subjectively look at those kind of things. We haven't uh, looked at the exact value of draft picks to say how much Mac was worth. I think it's also worth considering that kind of situation as well, um, looking at all the salary impacts as well. Since um, If you look at the draft, even though um, people have talked about right now that um, Mac for two first-round picks plus some, um, you don't see a player traded for two pick, two first-round picks that often, but you see it uh, all the time in the draft where a first-round pick is traded for uh, two other first-round picks. We saw that in this past draft as well. Um, the difference here is uh, Mac, you have to pay him a lot more than you'll have to pay that first-round uh, early draft pick. But also with Mac, you have a lot more certain, a certainty that uh, he's going to continue being a good player where a draft pick is always going to be a little bit more of a lottery. So I think there's a lot of things to take into account there. But um, just considering how good Mac is, um, typically when you see a player change teams at this point in his career and he's that good, uh, there's some sort of off-the-field concern or locker room concern, and I don't think that's there with Mac. So um, the price was high to get him, but I think he's worth that price. Could you talk also just briefly about, um, without giving away anything secret sauce here, um, what are some use cases that you know that teams have for pro football focuses data? So obviously you guys are working with, I think, all the teams, uh, Cade said. Um, there's got to be a reason they're buying your data. So w- w- do you know what the use cases are? Is it for salary? 
Is it for for determining salaries? Is it for trades? Is it for uh, on-field decision-making? Or is it possibly all of them? And can you give us a specific example of something, without mentioning the team, of how your data is used in, let's call it, the the formula for winning? Sure. Um, It's uh, different from one team to another. I think one thing that is pretty consistent with teams that you weren't mentioning there is uh, looking at tendencies for the opposing team, seeing when they are in this specific situation, what plays do they typically run, how successful are they at those those plays. And it's something where teams have been doing that for years, um, having their own guys look at a team's last four games, but we're able to give them uh, 10-plus years of data of when um, this coach line has three wide receivers on the left, what plays they like to run, in that situation, how does that change when those wide receivers are bunched together and go into those kind of level of of detail that they might not have time for over the course of the week when they're changing who their opponent is every single week to be able to look that far back and we're able to um, tie that in with their video system. So if they want to easily watch all of those plays rather than just seeing the uh, statistics of here's if they pass or ran, here's who they threw the ball to, um, if they want to watch the plays and see how they played out and try to find even more tendencies on their own, they're able to do that. And I think that's something similar in the player evaluation level as well, being able to see um, there are plenty of plays where um, what a cornerback did, you don't really need to watch that play if it was a run to the other side of the field the cornerback on the opposite side probably isn't doing anything noteworthy, but if you filter down to all of the plays that he was thrown at or all of a specific kind of plays, then you're able to scout that player a lot uh, faster than you were able to before. So I think that goes into a lot of the things that a number of the teams are using our data for. And then some of the things you said as well, using it to help them make decisions of uh, who to resign, who to sign from other teams, and using analytics in a lot more traditional sense that way. Nathan, um, exciting work that you guys are doing. I'd love seeing the success you've had. I think you're helping make the game smarter. Much appreciated, and appreciate your jumping on to join us this morning on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again for having me, and enjoy the game tomorrow night. Absolutely. You too. Nathan Johnkey, Director of Analytics over at Pro Football Focus in Cincinnati. Analytics outfit providing charting data and analytics throughout the NFL and increasingly college football nathan's been on the show before that is the halfway point of wharton moneyball we still have two quarters to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane and Eric. We've just lost Adi, but he'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Maddie Dat standing by, producer boss man standing by for your emails, live, real time, if you'd like, or middle of the week, if you're catching one of the replays. Or reach out on Twitter, our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests, comment periodically about 
sports analytics around the world and uh, would love to have you up there. You can send us over-under suggestions, segment coming up at the end of this hour. Just off the phone with Nathan Jonke, Director of Analytics at one of the great analytics shops out there, Pro Football Focus. We have another NFL guest helping us warm up for the 2018 season, and it's one of our favorites, longtime friend of the show, longtime friend of football fans everywhere, Aaron Schatz. Aaron Schatz, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me back. Glad to have you. You calling in from your neck of the woods up in Boston town? Yes, indeed. Well, how are things going for you? How are things gearing up as you roll into, this is NFL Eve, I suppose, with the first game tomorrow? Busy, man. Lots to write, lots to do. Uh, That's what happens when you actually try to take Labor Day, which I actually tried to take this year. (laughs) Labor Day, not normally a holiday when you're in the NFL business. That's right. So just to remind everybody, Aaron runs Football Outsiders, uh, uh, football analytics, really pretty much the first football, sophisticated football analytics shop and um, has been writing for various publications, ESPN.com, ESPN the Magazine, Boston Globe, New Republic, New York Times. Aaron's been doing this for some time now. And last year, Aaron, I was just remembering this as as we were re-entering the show, you were on late night TV. Who was it? Was it Conan or who had you on? Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers had you on last night. And that's like a, a first for... I think, you know, us analytics nerds anywhere. How, I mean, we, other than the Nate Silver, perhaps, that's the well, only Nate, like, one. runs the world, I suppose. Yeah. That's true. He's his own late-night show. But we aren't usually guests. We aren't usually guests. And so, Jonah Carey had been on Seth Meyers' show before me. That's where I got the idea, actually. Oh, to, is that right? To get on the show, yeah. All right. Well, it's a new level of celebrity. Hey, by the way, I also want to give you a little love because you're known for a lot of things, but I think you're insufficiently praised for the farm team aspect of what you've done there. You've, you've identified some re- very influential writers. Early on, I know you had Bill Conley, right? And Bill's gone, gone on to be pretty much the most highly regarded college football analyst yep, out Bill there. Yep, Bill Conley has done some, still does stats for us. We still use his stats with the writers your college that, he that he's left behind. Okay. And uh, I'm not wrong in – did you find Bill Barnwell also, or am I making that up? Yes, I found Bill Barnwell. Oh, Bill good Barnwell Lord. started by That's... writing for me, then went on to write for Bill Simmons, and yeah. now ESPN. Okay, Bill's about as good as it gets in, in in football writing, and that's just ridiculous. Okay, so you've given us, you've gifted the world Conley and Barnwell. That's pretty good, Aaron. Mike Tanier from Bleacher Report. All right, and David Gardner, who I think is at Bleacher Report, and Ryan Wilson from CBS, and Michael David Smith from Pro Football Talk, and Andy Benoit from Sports Illustrated, and Doug Farrar, who's currently a free agent. That's a that's quite a roster. That's quite a roster. Tell us, I mean, we, we, we're interested in hiring. It's one of the non-football things that analytics could be brought to bear on. How, how, how did you find Barnwell? How did you find Conley? How did you find some of these guys? Some of these guys, it's very random. Bill Barnwell was in a fantasy baseball league I was in. How did that happen? Uh, I think he answered an ad. <laughs> you had, you put out ads to you put out ads for your fantasy baseball league. Yeah, I'm like Craigslist or something. I don't remember. I didn't <laughs> oh run, I didn't God. run the league. I, I I was just a guy in the league, and wow. he became our first intern. And the projects he did were so good that when the time came that I had enough money to hire somebody full time to be my assistant, he was the obvious first choice. Okay. So he was the first full time employee of Football Outsiders, other than myself. And then went on from there to Grantland. Yeah, okay. Well, Bill, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, these 5,000-word articles he drops, you know, seemingly in an afternoon when some piece of news breaks. You know, informed, detailed, footnoted. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So yeah. you, you did something getting him getting him going. Well, jumping to 2018, you guys also had very big news. You had Edge Analytics come in 
and by by football outsiders. Edge is somebody we all kind of became familiar with last year when they got they were in the news for working with NFL teams on analytics and decision making. They were famously involved with the Philadelphia Eagles. We had him on the show in the spring, got to know him a little bit, super impressed. And like right after we talked to him, you guys had this deal. So what's it been like? What what's that all about and, and how's it been for you working with those guys? Yeah, I have coworkers now. That's weird. <laughs> I mean yeah. I had people work for me obviously, but now I have people that I kind of work with. Uh, it's really great for opening up. First of all, anybody who reads Football Outsiders noticed the, um, you know, the, the biggest issue with this purchase is not the analytics side, but the business side. That they've noticed that we've we redesigned the site finally, and that redesign was years and years and years in coming. And I never was able to really manage it and get the technical people to do it and. Edge came in and within two months made it happen. Oh, Our website beautiful. is just so much more readable right now, especially okay. on mobile than it used to be. Okay. Um, analytically, you know, the hope is going forward. Here, here's the thing is the, the one piece of analytics that I had sort of let kind of fall by the wayside that because other folks were much better at was expected points added and expected wins type models. Mm-hmm. And that is what they specialize in more than anything else. It's mm-hmm. not the only thing they do, but it's like what they're really known for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that makes for the perfect complement. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that as time goes on, we're able to use some of their models to help improve the analytics we do. And in, in turn, I'm going to be working with them on some of their consulting. Mm-hmm. And we just think it's a really good marriage. And uh, it also really helps me out on the business side. Terrific. Terrific. What Will it change your offerings this season? Is there anything different about the products that Football Outsider kicks out that'll be different this year? No, I think we're offering the same products. Some of the prices have changed. Some of them went down. Some of them went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly it's just that it looks better. <laughs> All right. That's a good place to start. One thing I know that you're, that you're well regarded for is your, is your over-unders, your win totals. You guys must do something clever to bake in such good priors, essentially. And so I'd, I'd love to, as a way to kind of segue into the 2018 season, talk about win totals that you think are interesting that you might see a little different than the rest of the market um, that we might be paying attention to this year. Yeah, we, we have some that are definitely different. And the biggest, I think, our biggest difference between us and the public is in the AFC South, where we have the teams all really closely grouped together, which means that we have Indianapolis much higher than conventional wisdom, and we have Jacksonville much lower than conventional wisdom. Okay. So the market, I'll show market is Colts 7.5 and, and Jacksonville 9. And you're, you're going to market up to seven and a half on the Colts. It was six and a half as, at one point. Well, you might move these things. I mean, it wouldn't be crazy. That I know some people are paying attention to what you guys have up there. So it's closed a little bit. Yeah. So we're not that much higher on the Colts than the market then. Okay. <laughs> so we have their average wins in our projections at eight. So Aaron, this is Eric Bradlow. First of all, thank you. By the way, I just on your site, I, I love the look of the new on my mobile. I love the look of Football Outsiders. I have a comment and then a question. Um, We've always, you know, one of the things in measurement that's always true is, like, it's really easy to say when a team's really good. It's really easy to say when a team's really bad. Is the AFC South anything different than you got a bunch of mediocre teams there? They're all going to regress towards the middle. There's a lot of uncertainty around any of them. Probably we're putting Jacksonville too high and Indianapolis too low. Is this just another instance of you never know what's going on in the middle of a distribution, really? 
Well, some uh, element of that, but some of it is also returns of players from injury. I mean, Houston regresses. Our, our projection from Houston has them regressing past the mean because of the return of players from injury. And I think Indianapolis also we have improving more than just regression to the mean would suggest because of uh, Andrew Luck returning from injury. And there's some sort of specific regression towards the mean things going on with Indianapolis and Jacksonville that are particularly interesting that are more than just overall performance. And how about the other thing I noticed right on the front of Football Outsiders, something that stares you right in the face, Kate, uh, Shane and I were talking about over break, at least as of now, you have Pittsburgh as being the highest probability team uh, yes. to win the Super Bowl above New England. is it, There could be lots of reasons for that. One is you think Pittsburgh was actually a really good team last year that underperformed. That's one possibility. Another could be, you know, you could argue the age curve for Tom Brady. You could argue the Edelman being out for a few weeks and him having no other actual receivers that have ever basically played football before. Um, what? How did you guys see uh, Pittsburgh being at the same basic level as New England? Well, I will tell you that the new scenarios that are going to go up later today will have New England back as the favorite with Pittsburgh number two, but the same basic thing applies, which is the two of them close together with a gap then to the rest of the league. And the reason why is that we see the AFC as being remarkably top-heavy. Because we see Jacksonville regressing towards the mean as such a likelihood, we have New England and Pittsburgh far beyond the rest of the AFC. Mm -hmm. So seven of our top nine projected teams for next year are are, seven of our top nine teams are NFC teams. That's ridiculous. Even if all seven of those teams match their projections, one of them has to miss miss the playoffs. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's the other. That's the other possibility. And also, as uh, I'll, I'm looking at Shane as I'm saying this, you know, um, since Pittsburgh and New England are likely to win their divisions, they're likely to also be the one and two seed. They have to flip one less coin. They don't have to play Week One. If you were almost certain of that, they have to almost be the top two teams. Because if you said right now which two teams in the league have the maximum probability of being the one and two seeds in their respective conferences, you'd have to go Pittsburgh and New England, right? And so that puts them at the top by almost by definition. Right. The other thing is offense is more projectable, is easier to project, huh. and more consistent from year to year than defense. And these are two of the top offenses in the league. There are two top offenses in projection for this year. Pittsburgh in particular, right, you've got an extremely consistent offensive line with a lot of continuity we found that that's very positive Hmm. you've got the best wide receiver in the league you have possibly the best running back in the league should he choose to play you've got a pretty good quarterback right we do a quarterback projection that's separate from the rest of the team that we then add into the team projection brady of course for the patriots you've got right one of the top quarterbacks in the league one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the league so you have these are the top projected offenses, and so since offense is easier to project than defense, that makes them the two top projected teams. Just for an effect size, can you give me an idea? You even mentioned just Le'Veon Bell. If Le'Veon Bell, let's say, doesn't play for five or six weeks or whatever the number is, um, how big an effect? I'm an effect size guy. Does this drop Pittsburgh from fifteen percent roughly on your site to ten percent, eight percent? Like, how much can one player really change the projection of a team? Uh, a running back, no less. Well, if Come it's on. not yeah. a quarterback, I mean, yeah. I'm not. We would honestly just be estimating. I'll be perfectly honest. We don't have a specific that we've done the research where we're like, when this player is missing, they're worth X amount, and then this player is missing, they're worth X amount. We get a rough idea. I mean, Bell, because he's so valuable as a receiver also, might be worth three or four percentage points in our DVOA ratings, 
which Pittsburgh is projected for something like 19%, which is the highest projection in the league. Pittsburgh is projected to be better than New England slightly, but because they have a harder schedule, New England has the easiest projected schedule. That's how we end up with flipping things now that New England is the number one Super Bowl contender. Got it. Aaron, let's do talk about a few quarterbacks and staying with the AFC. I mean, one of the teams I'm most interested in is the Chiefs, partly because we, we're kind of down on them. Our numbers aren't super op- optimistic about them. But Pat Mahomes, I mean, what do we really know about him? What, how do you have him rated? Um, and then what about the Browns with Tyrod? and the Mayfield thing. How do you think that's going to work out? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably thinking the same thing as you about the Chiefs, which is that we don't know what you expect from Mahomes, and even if Mahomes is going to be a star in the league, he's still effectively a rookie, and those Mm -hmm. guys aren't necessarily going to be as good in their first years. So Mm -hmm. uh, he was the top projected quarterback in our Q-based quarterback projection system for the class of 2017. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Higher than Deshaun Watson. But um, I do question, I mean, the quarterbacks coming out of the Big 12 do not have the best track record, and there is the worry that they're, you know, even after adjusting for uh, schedule, there's a little bit of a worry that they're, that they're system guys, especially. I mean, the big the t- Texas Tech stats, is kind of like that they're system guys, but that their stats are overblown because of yeah. the style of play in the Big Twelve. But okay. I guess we have Mayfield as our by far the best projected guy from this class. Of okay. course, you've got the same worry with Mayfield, right? right. So, right. I, I suppose in some ways, how Mahomes performs can help suggest how Mayfield will do. Uh, interesting. But Taylor is. I mean, Tyrod Taylor is. At worst, a slightly below average quarterback. At and worst, okay. They were the worst quarterbacking in the league last year for Cleveland. So mm-hmm. just going from Deshaun Kaiser to Tyrod Taylor should be a dramatic improvement. Okay. It's one of the reasons why we have Cleveland, uh, we have seven and a half average wins in our projections. And that, subjectively, that sounds a bit too high for me. I think their coaching has um, some problems. <laughs> but they are not far behind the rest of the league the way that they you know okay, the way let, that people think about I just want to note that that is two games of you're you're backing away from your model a little bit but that is two games more than the market which is that's the, that's what we're looking for and by the way we have them number 20 in the league so we're I would definitely we're kind of with over you. the market on Cleveland yeah. okay do you have any uh since I have to start always it on, starts be, and ends be, with the buccaneers hold on before you do oh, that you're changing the conferences buccaneers. on me one last thing yeah. AFC quarterback speaking of worst in league that's where we have Peterman just announced as the starting quarterback for the Bills. What how do you th- could you have? How could you have anyone else as the worst okay. quarter, starting okay. quarterback in the league? Given okay. not only what he did in, in in his play last year, but just the track record of fifth round picks who don't have any track record, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, the track record of guys who are taken low in the draft who have no track record is terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how could you have Peterman anything other than the worst? starting quarterback in the league how about a known player like ryan fitzpatrick who i know is no good <laughs> well first of all fitzpatrick was surprisingly good in his three games as a starter last year um he was he was really not that bad uh but also winston is is better than i think people give him credit for the problem with tampa bay is the defense not the offense we had their offense ranked 11th last year okay um, so when Winston comes back, uh, I have him projected as uh, someone who's going way too low in fantasy drafts because uh, I think he's going to put up big numbers once he comes back. Just to Obviously. check one thing, you guys have New Orleans you have projected as a good team, right? We have New Orleans projected, I think, as number one in the NFC. Okay, right and now. you have Philadelphia as a good team, right? 
Yes. And you have Steelers as a good team, right? Yes. Those are the Buccaneers' first three games. So how do you like those three games? <laughs> not not good. Not good. But like, look, look, there's a lot of randomness in this league, man. I mean, th- there's not. it's not ridiculous to think that Tampa could come out of that one and two. So we're talking to Aaron Schatz. Aaron is the founder and head still footballoutsiders.com, one of the best shops out there for football analytics, now in partnership with Edge analytics aaron has been doing this for a few years what as you look around the league as we get ready for tomorrow's first game what are you most interested in? what are you most curious about what questions do you have going into the year oh i mean i i think uh the the afc south and is really interesting the afc west is not as good but really interesting um you know, obviously, you go into every year with the question of which is going to be the team that surprises us all by coming from out of nowhere. Yeah, right. right. Good. Right. Last year, it was the Saints. Uh, the Rams, although we sort of half predicted that. I mean, we were the people who were saying that the Rams were playoff contenders last year. Is that right? Going into the season. Yeah, but we, we, not, we did not understand that what was going to happen to the offense. Our prediction was that their defense was going to improve to be one of the best in the league and that combined with special teams that that would make them contenders even if the offense even if the offense just went from horrid to below average we did not think their offense was going to above average that was a bit of a surprise but every year there's going to be a couple of teams that come you know really from out of nowhere and turn things around i got one there are going to be a couple this year what about the quarterback who has never been defeated in the nfl who's in an extremely weak conference i don't think that's weak, coming di- out weak of division me. no san francisco i'm just saying i haven't heard any that's a weak division with the rams and seahawks i don't think they're a partic- well rams rams seahawks, i mean if you look at the seahawks and the players that they've lost and plus earl thomas holding out and the effect that he has on their pass defense when he plays versus when he doesn't play you can't put them in that. I'm just saying, do you have any projection for San Francisco this year? How Do you see them overperforming, or they're about where we they should? We have them under the market, I think. Uh, we have them at 7.5 average yeah, wins. That's a game under. Game under yeah, the market. Because, because I think, you know, listen, I would love for Garoppolo to be the thing that he was for five games. <laughs> but there are a lot of quarterbacks in this league who've had five-game streaks yeah. that are similar to what Garoppolo did last year. Yeah, And you've also his five-game streak was really a four-game streak because the fifth game was against the Rams' backup, so it was effectively a preseason game. Okay, But, I mean, that's not to take away from how good he was. The other problem with the San Francisco is that their defense was not good last year. And, and while defense is difficult to predict compared to offense, it certainly could could you know, improve dramatically. It's not likely to. So who else, if it's not going to be San Francisco, Eric's first suggestion, you know, I guess Atlanta wouldn't be surprising. I can tell you that if you build up a model based on, like, individual players, you end up really liking Atlanta. Atlanta is this team that more than any other team in the NFL seems to be less than the sum of its parts, yeah. especially on defense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're what? just like, this guy's talented, this guy's talented, <laughs> this guy's talented, this guy's talented, and they're 22nd in defensive DVOA. How is that possible? And yet, it's been two straight years with all these talented guys that they haven't gotten above 22nd. So I guess that takes us to the world of coaching analytics, which is kind of underdeveloped and needs attention. I hope you guys get, you should partner with Edge and move into that area as well. Well, part of the problem is, you know, we've looked at, tried to look at coaching in the past, and what we end up with is sort of a variable that measures all intangibles. I know, exactly. You just put them in the residual. The entire residual, give it to the coaches, which isn't the right thing to do. Right, which isn't the right thing to do. But I think one thing coaching analytics you can do is you can look at the, the strategies certain coaches look, right. use, 
and how often those strategies are effective league-wide. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, you look at Seattle, where Brian Schottenheimer has been quoted as saying, we want to be able to run the ball even when our opponents know the run is coming. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look at some of the work that's been done this offseason by Josh Hermsmeyer on Josh. Uh, running against stacked boxes. Love that like, guy. You know, the idea of running when the other team knows you're going to run is a bad idea. Not a good idea. So that's my kind of coaching analytics, which is looking at the strategies that coaches use and saying, do these strategies make sense? But trying to compute an exact number that the coach is worth can be very difficult because you end up sort of, you end up, you know, reining in all the different possible intangibles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if you're not pointing to an interesting direction to go, though, because in the past, we've, if you don't want to just give them the entire residual, which we don't, you end up with just a few things you can play with. You know, what's their fourth down strategy? What's their onside kick strategy? What's their two-point conversion strategy? But you've just suggested, you know, maybe in this day and age of having very good charting data, and especially with player tracking, charting data is just going to get that much easier we could start doing things like, okay, for all the situations where a coach faced the Atlanta defense with a stacked box, um, what did they do versus expectation? You know, something like that. You can say, given, given a similar situation and, and you'd have to control for their talent of player somehow, but given the, the, if they all played the Atlanta defense in a certain configuration, how did they exploit it? And you want, you'd want to give coaches credit or blame if they reliably underexploited or overexploited it compared to other teams. Yeah, I think going on to a team by team level like that might get a little too granular. I'm not sure how you, if you would have enough sample size there, but you could just do, you know, how teams reacted to stack boxes for the full year, mm-hmm. how they reacted. The other big one that we wrote about a lot this year is Cleveland running a ton of base defense even when opponents would put out 11 personnel. So even when opponents were spreading the field, Cleveland would only have four defensive backs, which is one of the reasons why Cleveland was so spectacularly good against the run last year and so horrible against the pass. And it's a passing league. You want to be good against the pass, and you sacrifice run defense for pass defense if necessary because it's a passing league and passing is more efficient. And Cleveland would throw four defensive backs out there on play after play after play. It was made no sense. <laughs> Aaron, you said earlier that you were skeptical about the Browns, even skeptical of your own model about the Browns because of some coaching questions. That's, I thought, about Hugh Green, and he's kind of an offensive Hugh guy. Hugh Jackson. not Hugh Green, <laughs> Pittsburgh defensive No, a lot lineman. of it is about Greg Williams. Okay, so the defensive side. So, so, so um, is this the guy who they injured their cornerback, their number four pick, and he, he got himself injured making a tackle. And Williams's response to that in the press conference was, well, maybe this will teach him to tackle the way I told him to tackle. That is the guy. This is the guy. All right. Well, that plus your uh, I don't play nickel defense tells me a few things I need to know about him. Interesting. So those are your reservations. I don't, we shouldn't be too hard on individuals, I suppose. But those are your reservations about the Browns? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, just it also, I mean, Hugh Jackson – I think the fact that they've gone, whatever, one and seven in close games over the last couple of years, I mean, there's a lot of randomness in that. But if you're going to blame somebody for poor performance in close games, the coach seems like a good person to blame for that. Okay, so bouncing back to the positive side, and we're probably going to have to go to the NFC to find positive side, but you were talking about who are the, who are the one or two teams that are going to surprise us 
they, they always kind of come out of nowhere. Who, who's, who do you have your chips on? See, I don't think you – it's hard to predict that a team is going to be one of those teams. I know. I think it's e- easier to tell a story. Okay. It's easier to say with this team you can tell a story. I guess the one team I would predict will be better than expectation, but I don't think this means better than what Vegas has them, is Dallas. Okay. Because I think people are forgetting how good Dallas was through the last year and a half until the second half of last year. Yeah. And the decline of the Dallas offense is tied not as much to Ezekiel Elliott's suspension, but to Tyron Smith's injury. Okay. So Smith is a highly, highly regarded left tackle? Yeah. Okay. And um, we have them. I mean, I was, I, frankly, I, I think you're nailing. I'm as susceptible to that narrative as anybody. I look up at our numbers for week one, and we have Dallas six, number six. I mean, you know, right there with Philadelphia and Atlanta. Yeah, um, in we the have them a little lower because we, we, since the book, since the book, we've, we've uh, dinged them a little bit for offensive line changes yeah, well, because of the, the Guillain Barre syndrome for Travis Frederick. Yeah, they've lost their long term center there. Exactly. Okay. But still, that's a team that people talk about them like they're going to be terrible. <laughs> like, I realize Vegas is number, but if you read what people say on the internet, if you go through and read Twitter and what people say about the Cowboys, they talk about the Cowboys like they're going to be awful. They're like, oh, the Cowboys receivers are so bad. The Cowboys receivers were not much better than this two years ago. That was the last dregs of Des Bryant, the end of Jason Witten's career, and yep. otherwise the same guys they have now. Yeah. Look, yep. what's actually interesting, I'm staring up at the Massey Peabody ranks. If you look at the NFC East, I mean, I know it has Giants near the bottom, which probably appropriately so, but it's not like you can – if you woke up at the end of the season and the Giants were a, a decent team, it wouldn't surprise you. That's what's interesting to me about the NFC East. I don't think there's any really bad teams in the NFC East. Maybe the Giants will turn out to be bad. How do you see the NFC East? Yeah, you were just not, talking about Dallas. Not last year, but the year before last, we had all four NFC East teams in our top ten. Wow. Okay. Now, the Giants obviously fell apart last year, but you can tell the Giants' rebound story. The Giants' rebound story is really easy to tell. Eli really hasn't been falling off. The problem is that all his receivers got injured and the offensive line has been terrible. Now the offensive line is better and his receivers are back and their defense, as long as it's just as average, they'll be good. Right? That's the story. Okay. I don't believe that story. I think Eli <laughs> Manning is over the hill. But that's the story that you can tell about them. See, that's the difference between the surprise teams where you can tell a story and the ones where you can't. For example, it's harder to tell the story about, like, Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> There's right? no story. The Josh Allen has to blow up somehow. We'll need George R. R. Martin in to, to tell, tell that story. story about the Jets because you have to be like Sam Darnold has to be one of the best, like not what he did a year or two ago. He has to be one of the best rookie quarterbacks of all time. Mm-hmm. That's a harder story to tell than the Chicago story, yeah. which is the Chicago just does what the Rams did. And they've got a second-year quarterback with a first-year offensive coordinator, and they ran the ball too much last year, and now they're going to pass the ball more. And, oh, by the way, their defense, which was underrated last year, has Khalil Mack on it now. That's an easier story to tell. So even though we have Chicago projected at the bottom of their division, like I can tell the story of how they beat that projection. It's a much easier story to tell than a team like the Jets or the Bills. Okay, so so while you're on the Bear story, do do you, do you where are you on Trubisky? These guys made a controversial move up in two drafts ago to grab him. He kind of underwhelmed, but he was a first year quarterback last year. What what do you think his prospects are? Yeah, he underwhelmed, but that offense. I mean, part of it is that offense was built. They were like number one or two in the league in run pass ratio in the first half of mm-hmm. games. Like they tried to hide him so much. Yep. 
The problem is our projections didn't like him because it doesn't like quarterbacks who don't have a lot of college experience, and he only had one year as a starter. Right. So right. he's just a colossal risk. Right. Now that doesn't, I mean, it's not a guarantee that he's bad. I know scouting people love him, but it's a colossal risk. So last last question, back to Dallas, staying on quarterbacks, though. Dak Prescott, there, he took a lot of heat last year when Elliott went out. Um, you know, People doing the split stats with Elliott, without Elliott. Some people have since said, actually, Tyron Smith is the better variable explaining his performance. In the end, where do you think he stacks up across the NFL as a quarterback? I think Dak Prescott is one of the better quarterbacks in the league. And right. I, I would say... We can learn more from Dak Prescott's first 24 games than from his last eight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's encouraging for Cowboy fans out there. And again, uh, the, the the Vegas likes them okay. Eight and a half is their win total. We like them a little better. You guys like them pretty good. It's going to be an interesting story to see how they do and how they navigate these latest injuries. Aaron, we're going to let you go, but we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. And I just want to remind people, if you want to get a lot of these thoughts from me and my writers, Football Outsiders Almanac 2018 is still on sale. You can get it from our website, footballoutsiders.com. It's $20 for the electronic version, $28.95 for the uh, print version, over 500 pages of college and pro uh, previews for this year, including fantasy projections, chapters on all 32 NFL teams. Folks should check that out. All right. Absolutely. They have a great website, great people to pay attention to over the course of the season. That was Aaron Schatz. Aaron is the founder and leader of FootballOutsiders.com. All right. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner is out in the classroom as we speak. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning to talk sports analytics for two hours. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us businessradio at crsxm.com. Or add us on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is the account. Out at WMoneyBall. Send us questions, observations, complaints, over-under suggestions, whatever you want to do at WMoneyBall on Twitter. Dion Simpkins on the board, associate producer, longtime sound engineer, and favorite of the show. Welcome back, Dion. Good to see you. Give us give us the word on the Eagles, my man. Tell us what's going to happen to your team this year. Cautious optimism. How can you be cautious after a Super Bowl? That's not what you're supposed to do. No, because I'm an Eagles fan, and I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I know not to get my hopes up. All right, so tell us what cautious optimism means. We're Ca- kind of precise around here. Cautious optimism for me is if if we – because, see, here's my thing. Like After the Super Bowl, I'm not, I'm not going repeat. Okay. I'm not going right. to repeat. You got your expectations in check. Right. So right. if they if, if if you give me a playoff win, <laughs> I'm happy. All right. Okay. I'm happy. All right. All right. Well, make well, it out of the wild card well, round. It's not just a question for Dion, but for all of us. Are you more likely to believe that the Eagles will win the Super Bowl this year versus let's turn the clock back and make the projection forward? I mean, we know what information do we have to update us? We know that this team can win the Super Bowl. We know that it's a very good team. Isn't if I'm standing here September whatever it is, 5th, 2018, isn't my projection higher for this no, year because, than it was a year ago? Well, because the luck yes. component, you regress. 
Right? No, I mean, no, I mean no, we but, know. But ex ante last year, we were... But ex ante... Oh, we, uh, compared to what we're looking ahead from yeah, yeah, last looking year. Yeah, ahead. of course, of course. Yeah, so I'm saying when Dion says cautious optimism, I understand that. But the math would say you should have a better forecasting yeah. belief sitting here now than sure. you did a year ago. Yeah, but the, the odds are always against everybody, you know? So no, cautious I'm not saying optimism it's high. Is appropriate. Yeah. So, I mean, also they've got to do the whole repeat thing. Yeah. And it's the building is Every different. Every team's the building be is different. Them. The building is different after after a uh, after a Super Bowl win, and you know it's been a long off season for those guys. They had one of the great parades probably in the history. Oh, of the I NFL. just remember talking to one of my, our, our, our department ministers, who's a big Eagles fan, and she's like, "Oh, I didn't realize they get to play on Thursday before the season opens." I'm like, yeah, that's what happens when you win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of used to it. My team plays on Thursday every other year. But, I mean, you know, I, I think it's great that other teams are discovering this. <laughs> God. Insufferable. I know. Absolutely I know. insufferable. So the market has the Eagles at 10.5, by the way, 10.5 wins, which is tied for the second most from any of the 32 teams. So they have Pats number one at 11.5 wins. And then Eagles, Vikings, and Steelers all come in at 10.5. So that would be the, the the highest tied with the Vikings for the that's, highest in the NFC. That's really a knife edge number. I mean, ten and a half. So the Eagles are going to win. A, I mean, if you had to get, if I had to pick right now, I think under. I'd go under for sure. Under. Yeah, I, I mean, think so. I mean, that's in that NFC. That's a the lot NFC, of money. The, the, the NFC and just looks so stacked. It's it, it's it's kind of unbelievable. So we're going to do at the end of this half hour, we're going to do some some matchups. But let's talk about a few other sport things as as before we go there. So anything else in the U.S. Open? So we talked a little bit about the Nadal match last night. We talked about the lottery match and the women's draw. Um, what, how is it shaping up for this final weekend? Well, there is one thing that caught my eye. You know, you brought up the Oakland A's fifty-eight and zero. Well, there were two other stats that came out from the U.S. Open as well. That were, you know, this is where I've always said, sometimes you're the old Roger Federer and sometimes you're the old Roger Federer. <laughs> and so Federer had like I th- some record like in majors, he was something like 124-0 against people ranked outside the top 50. He lost to John Millman, who was ranked 55th in the world. Um, Sharapova, you could say she's nearing the end. She's closer to the end of her career than the beginning. I, I understand. She was something like 24-0 in night matches at the U.S. Open. She lost her first ever night match at the Open. Uh, I was also relating to golf this last weekend where Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson both played well. Well, except they play four rounds in golf. They don't play two rounds in golf. Last time I checked, Ronaldo, I think, is this still true? Ronaldo has not scored he didn't yet. Score. He did score in August. Okay, so he hasn't scored yet, maybe for Juventus. And then I'm starting to think, you know, at some point, these older players just have massive variability in their games. And that, in some sense, you've got to stop stop having like, oh, well, Federer's a 97% chance, which was basically the odds to beat Millman. No, he's not. He's not going to be a 97% chance. There's always he's just this, not that reliable yeah. He's anymore. just not that reliable any, anymore. Any old machine start, loses its reliability. Yeah, and I mean, it just, you know, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, mm-hmm. they just got picked, as I'm yeah, sure you guys know, yesterday, that? and Bryson DeChambeau, no problem there, given he's won the last two tournaments. Um could Tiger Woods go out there? By the way, Tiger Woods has not been defeated in the Ryder Cup singles play since 1997, the first year he played. Now, could he go out there and shoot 75 or, you know, it's match play, so they don't keep the whole score. It's how many, who wins how many holes? He could go out there and get blown out. Phil Mickelson, people say, oh, he's great. He's great. He won a major. I think Phil Mickelson's won one tournament in the last six or seven yeah, years. Yeah, Eric, I wondered about this. If you, if you could have only, if you're the captain and you get to take only one 
of Tiger and Phil? Which one do you take? That's a great question. Um, I think you would have to take Tiger Woods. I think so, too. I th- and, and here's why. I think um, maybe this is just my rooting for Tiger, which everybody knows I do. I do. There's 80% of the holes, and I've watched probably every brown he's played and every hole he's played. Thank God for PGA Tour Live. I've watched probably <laughs> 80% of the holes he's played, or almost all the holes he's played since he's come back in the last six months. 80 90% of the time, you're like, I can't believe it's the old Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. You know, he's hitting balls within three feet of the hole. He's getting up and down some places he shouldn't. And then the other 10 to 15%, which is enough to lose you a golf tournament, which means two holes around, he's the old Tiger Woods. But, yeah, I think I would still take Tiger over Phil. So you're talking about watching that much golf. What what sport? You can multitask, though. Golf is great to watch yeah. with other sports, which is what I've been doing. <laughs> so most people, Shane, when they talk about I've multitasking. I've always wondered how you watch so many sports. Most people you're think... watching multiple sports <laughs> well, simultaneously. Is, well, well, PGA Tour Live, you can watch on your computer, your phone, etc. So that, I, my office has I, a 70-inch have... screen in it, and I'm watching on my computer monitor, okay, so I'm okay. watching two we're things at once. I'm, this is key insight here. Well, it's, multitasking is not just working and watching sports to Eric. Multitasking to Eric is working, yeah. watching sport number one and sport number two. That and if you correct. happen to have a third screen around and I'm, sports, I'm sure Eric, within the work category, too, is probably doing about three different oh, things at once. Oh, no, no, I'm do. also working while doing this. Well, but, no, I understand. You know, you have but, two monitors. You have yeah. one screen on sports, your TV on sports, and another one on work. Okay. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. All right, so I, I suggest here, – here's a question for you. If you – and I have to figure out how to ask this question more precisely. But in general, which sport would you most like to watch the highlights from? Which sports highlights do you most enjoy? And try to set aside your particular favorite sport or whatever. It's like which sport do you think provides the most in, ex, intrinsically interesting highlights? NFL or football. College football, I'm happy to put in that. I can, I, I can I, just do this. Just, highlights? Okay. Yeah, just soccer. Highlights. Soccer goals are so Shane pretty. Jensen, I'm so with you. I'm going soccer. I'm going I mean, honestly, all day long. It, it, also, I mean, you can really spend like 10 seconds per game on it. Right. I mean, I can, I can watch an entire Champions League week or, or like, you know, a Premier well, League well, week of highlights in like well, a minute. Well, maybe I'm just showing my bias here, but... Um, I can't remember the last time I've actually watched an NFL game. So I don't watch NFL anymore. I watch oh. the red zone. And so I actually, even if the Eagles are on, even if the Buccaneers are on, I don't actually watch the game anymore. I just like that the high leverage points of every game, it doesn't even matter to me who's playing. I just love watching the high leverage points of football games. And so soccer, it doesn't do it for me as much, but I could see why you're saying that. It would be a short clip, as Shane said. Yeah. I just love the NFL clips. I love watching these high leverage points of every game, and they well, switch and, back and I mean, and also, the, the, the kind of brilliance of the Red Zone channel and, and, and that kind of concept is it's sort of like it's the – it's it's still like live. I mean, you're you're not watching highlights where you know something good happened. You still can actually kind of watch in real time something exciting happen. You've got to be a little so, bit the, careful. The Let me for just soccer, say, for somehow so- we'd be able to actually know where some of these kind of breaks and uh, breakouts. Got to be a little careful because if you actually follow football online during the NFL games, like I do. The Red Zone channel has about a 10 or 15 second delay, oh, so you got to be a little careful. That's good to know. Gentlemen, I'm giving you a highlight from Syria. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. This is this uh, Division One Italian League game against Napoli. I can't even say the other team's name, Sampdoria. So there's a player there who's famous for 
hitting these beautiful goals, scoring these beautiful goals. And he had this ridiculous thing. I'm listening to this sports podcast, and they're going on about this goal. I had to go track it down. And it is absolutely ridiculous. And you just, I mean, I love college football. I love football in general. But I don't think yeah. you can compete with the most exciting things that happen in soccer. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, it's just so hard to score in soccer. You have to do these essentially ridiculous things to get the ball in the in I the will goal. say the following. If you asked me what's the most exciting moment in sports, and I'm eliminating you know, Adam Vinatieri kicking the field goal to win the Super Bowl or anything like that, the penalty shootout, like in a, yeah. in a soccer game, is, I mean, it's riveting television. It's, it is probably the most excited I get or anxious right? I get, yeah. even if even, I don't care what, about the teams that much. What about playoffs, ninth inning, full count, man on base... I don't know. Tie game, that thing, that thing is amazing. That's as good as baseball gets. I agree with that. The only problem is that tie game may continue on for four or five more innings. This penalty shootout is ending now. Like it's ending at some point really soon. Yeah. So uh, either way, I'll I'll still take the NFL highlights, but I like soccer. All right. Well, I'm just pitching a little bit. I'm not going to go overboard here, but just struck me. I take it's. Mm -hmm. I I discovered basically the pleasure I'm taking whenever I do chase down these unusual goals. And every time it's just it's just ridiculous. If you're going to tell me, you know, Barry Sanders highlights, it's going to be it's going to be some competition because there was a piece recently in ESPN about Sanders. I think it was the '88 season, and the, the argument was this was the greatest football season, college football season ever. He broke all these records that are going to stand forever. And um, Barry Sanders was a highlight machine. So his best season in college football is pretty amazing to watch. Speaking of football, though, let's roll over to our Moneyball matchups. Moneyball matchups. All right, this was the original end of show segment. This is the reason we have the over under segment is that the matchups went away at the end of last year's football season, and Eric resourcefully came up with a substitute for it. But we're back to football season, so we're back to our original end of show segment, the Moneyball matchups. In this segment, we just take a gander at the schedule for the coming weekend. This time, we're just going to look at the NFL, and we talk about we take some we make some picks. Talk about what games we think are most interesting. I don't know what the exact agenda is for week one, but Eric, what do you what do you think? What do you want to do here? Well, there. I'm just looking at games that um, I'm, you know. I'm always thinking about you know who am I going to bet on this weekend. I'm looking at three games. Do you that, mean do you mean like how do you bet? Well, Eric? conceptually betting. Conceptually of course, betting. we're talking about conceptual betting mm-hmm. here because of course betting on football is not legal in some parts of the country. Um, but here's I'm not buying the Cleveland Browns at all. So I look at this first game on our list. Well, the first game is obviously the Falcons-Eagles. I look at the Steelers and the Browns, and I'm thinking the Steelers are only a four-and-a-half-point favorite. I understand the game's in Cleveland. I, I'm i going Steelers all day long. I just, oh, yeah. I don't, yeah. Like, I don't like Cleveland plus four-and-a-half in that game, and I'm shocked that it's only four-and-a-half. And to me, that's the game of all the games that stands out to say, I think people are just making too high a quick adjustment on Cleveland. And well, well, but why did it move? This game opened at eight, now it's down to four and a half. Are you going to tell me Bell is responsible for a three and a half point move? There's I, I no way. Know. Look, that's what it says here. I'm just saying, I haven't, I'm sure there are other betting lines. I'm sure. No, no, I, I trust the line. I just, I think it's a big move and I bet that's an overreaction to Bell among other things. Yeah, it could very well be. Um, but either way, that's the first game that caught my eye. I like this. actually a, a, a similar game like that in terms of I think sort of like that's kind of the market somehow has closer than it should be is the Jaguars against the Giants. That's a three point game. 
The Jaguars went to the AFC Championship last year. But they year. were not as ever really as good as they... As okay, they, but the, the Giants won four games last year, I think? That is the correct number. You know, yeah. I'll tell you what, fellas. It's hard to get big spreads in week one if you're, if you're really factoring in That's why I view it as an opportunity. I always view the week one games. I, understand, I know less, too, so I get yeah, that. You, I, get, I got adjusting, it. Right? I know less, too. That, that's an interesting— but let, me, let me just take you through our numbers, for example. Okay. On, Pitt, on Pittsburgh, who we make the fourth best team in the league. Okay. We, we have them only plus 3.36, so— we. You just can't get very stretched out this time in the year. So plus three point means we think that against an average team on a neutral field, they would win by 3.3 points. Now, later in the season, the fourth best team is going to be a plus seven, plus eight kind of thing. But if you drop down to Cleveland, who we have as almost the average team in the league, they're, they're, we have them 17th in the league. No, that's just I'm looking at Cincinnati. We have the 20th in the league, minus 1.12. So that's about a four and a half point spread on yeah. a neutral field. And then they're going to get two and a half points for being home. So we're only going to make it a two-point game. So not only do we but not think, think the that the surprise it, in that calculation is that you have Cleveland that yeah. move, moving up to essentially being like almost in the top average. almost two thirds average. of the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also I, th- I do think there's a week one lesson that you got to mm-hmm. you got to kind of regress everything to the mean because we just don't know that much. Yeah, I just again for I I think I like what Shane just said. It's the narrative, which is. If the Steelers are anywhere near, maybe they're not, if they're anywhere near as good as they were last year, and Cleveland's not appreciably better than they were last year, better, but not appreciably better. They're going to be appreciably better. No, 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 but I'm saying, I just said if, at the moment, if, (laughs) then this line is off to me by a touchdown. Now, so either way, that's the game that caught my eye. That's the money ball matchup that caught my eye. You've got me excited about that game now. Like, Look, I've got issues with the regime over there, but it is an interesting story. That is a division game. The Browns are going to be psyched because they're hosting this thing. They're all fired up. They've had a great off season. That's an interesting game. What if Roethlis? What if Roeth, what if Roethlisberger's like rusty and old? Could very what well they, be. What if the what if those young pass rushers for the Browns can get to him? Here's another game. Oh, I mean, it all could happen. It could happen. It could happen. I, I, here, happen. Here's Pittsburgh another game that caught my eye, and I'll be interested to see the Massey Peabody line on this. You know, I I even brought up the magic of Jimmy Garoppolo. There, I mean, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, Minnesota at home is only a six-point favorite. Now, that to me is all like everyone's... And even you see, the line has moved. Uh, but everyone here is kind of buying into San Francisco is, you know, the magic of Garoppolo. I think they're going up to Minnesota, and I don't think it's going to go well. Mm-hmm. And I like Minnesota <laughs> in that game minus six. Yeah, I do too, actually. I think... Um, I mean, I kind of agree. I mean, I, I actually <laughs> hope Jimmy Garoppolo does really well. And so has do a great I. NFL career, but... That is a tough first game of the season in Minnesota. Right. So Massey Peabody has Minnesota number one in the league, at and the, but number one right now is only plus four and a half. Okay. So you take Minnesota plus four and a half. We have San Francisco 19th in the league. They're down there right next to Cleveland at minus so one So that's point. five and a half and then two and a half for the home field. You have that's it as right. an eight-point game. We this have has the it Vikes, as a six-point game. We have the Vikes as eight. And this thing opened at four and a half. It's up to six. We would push it higher. Yeah. That's just another game that caught my eye. And the other one, which is, you know, just I don't know why I keep believing one of these years they may actually win the Super Bowl, but I look at this Dallas Cowboys at Carolina Panthers game, Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe I'm thinking of last year's Cowboys, who especially at the end of the year, who weren't very good, and I'm thinking Carolina's only minus two and a half, and I'm thinking I watched the entire NFC South last year, which was a damn, except for the Bucs, were a damn good division last year. And I'm thinking... 
Carolina's not going to win that game by more than two and a half points. So I like Carolina minus two and a half at home against Dallas. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I would I would put that game kind of I mean I yeah I guess I would put those two teams as equal? I, I think as so you equal. Like it. So, so you kinda, like it? Yeah, you I like basically I think the line's about right. I mean, I, I view that game as a toss up on a neutral field. So I think the fact that Carolina's at home, it's it's pretty much right where it would be. Where was I'll Shane? take Dallas just because I kind of want Dallas to win that game. But well, I definitely as an NFC South Buccaneers guy, well, I definitely yes, want, want Dallas, Dallas to win right. that game. So we're with Shane on that. We we like Dallas number six in the league, but we also think Carolina's reasonably stout number ten. We would make it a basically a half point game to on a neutral field to the Cowboys. So after you give Carolina two and a half point home field advantage, you have about a two point line. So very close to the line and a good matchup. Be a good little test on the Cowboys. How do you see the obviously you know it's not that it's a trivial game at all. How do you see the Patriots Texans game going this weekend? Oh, I mean, I'm excited. I, I mean, I'm, it's an exciting game because right? if Deshaun Watson is as good as he looked, and the Texans defense has moments where it looks really good, um, could that be a competitive game? Oh, I think it will be a competitive game. This game happened last year around this same like early in the season. Who won? I just don't. I honestly don't remember. Wasn't the it Patriots a cl- won? At but the it last had minute, to, it had to be another Brady magic last drive kind of situation. Like 30, oh, 30 I mean, kind of game. Deshaun like Watson that? lit up their defense, and and you know, I mean, similarly, it was it was early in the season before the Patriots had sort of figured out what they had on defense. But that is the case, obviously, every year, right? So I think. I think that it's going to be a very competitive game. I could easily see Houston winning this game. Let me ask you guys a question. Hold hold on. on I I think Houston's overrated. I think the Deshaun Watson thing is overrated. We see this very analogous to the San Francisco going to Minnesota thing. This is about the same quality of team as San Francisco going to about the same quality of team as Minnesota, and we make it an eight-point game. So this thing, I think, is a little – the line is a little light yet. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, because you had asked um, Aaron Schatz about coaching analytics. Do you think coaching plays a bigger role early in the season or later in the season? If we could, me- let's ima- I'm just asking your opinion, since it's hard to measure coaching value either way. Could you make an argument that, I don't know, I could make an argument either way. I mean, you rather, that's right, we all agree Bill Belichick's the top coach in the NFL? Yeah, he's very good. Can we agree to that? Does. Sure. I mean, I don't know top co- – I mean, who knows? But he is a very, very good been- coach. All right. He's won, what, eight Super Bowls? I mean, five with the Patriots, two with the Giants. I mean, at least I mean, seven. He- Maybe one is something yeah, else, yeah. too. He's, he's, he's great. Either way, does he have – if you had to say the value of coaching in the NFL, does it happen more early in the season or late in the season? I'm going to say late because you know more about the team, both your yeah. own team and your opponents. So there is more room for strategy given that knowledge. But – I'm sure you can make an argument another way. That's just the first that comes to mind. I just, I also like Belichick. I, I just, I'm thinking New England in that game. I hate to say New England's going to beat Texas in that game, but I think, I think Texas is over. Texans are overrated too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so guys, we're down to just the last minute or so. What are you most excited about Week One NFL? Oh, I'm actually excited that that Patriots, that that, Deshaun that Watson, Deshaun, to see what the Patriots do with Deshaun Watson, to yeah, see if a, Deshaun Watson comes back kind of in immediate form, yeah. whether he struggles to start, and you know how much of that is uh, Patriots kind of like worry, giving him some kind of interesting I, things to deal with. I I'm, worry, I'm super excited about that. I worry that there's too much hype on a small sample. Yeah, yeah and I'm I'm most excited about the Eagles. I mean, our team won the Super Bowl. It's tomorrow night, <laughs> opening game. I'm just against excited the, about and, and against a very talented yes, team. Yeah. That's, that's going to be a great it's game. It's a great game. All great right. game. Well, that has been 
another show here at Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to those of you who listened. Many thanks to our producer and boss man, Matty Das, for putting this thing together. To our guest, Nathan Jonke of Pro Football Focus and, and, and uh, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. To our sound engineer today and associate producer every other day, Dion Simpkins. Glad to have you back in the studio. This has been Cade Massey for Shane, for Eric, and for Adi. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here next Wednesday. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.